Eschatology is the theological word that we use to describe the study of those things that describe the end, the study of last things. I think eschatology has actually fallen on hard times in the church. And a church full of fragile faith and evaporating love is the result. I think that can be a fair assessment of our day today, and it is essentially the message of 2 Thessalonians. So why is it that I would say, especially about this current state of Christianity in general, and the focus of this book in particular, that eschatology has fallen on hard times? Well, one is you look at opposition to Christianity. It's increasing. If you doubt this, you could readily consult Albert Moeller's daily dose of discouragement. I mean, the briefing. <laughs> the briefing that describes the culture's intensifying proactive steps to isolate and alienate and ultimately silence the public voice of Christians. Uh, maybe you heard it this week. Just an example, on Thursday, Dr. Moeller reported on a school district in Phoenix, Arizona that unanimously voted to no longer accept student teachers or credentialed teachers from a local Christian university just because of their biblical statement on marriage. It's not that anybody had reported them, there weren't any problems that had been lodged against any individual, they just had a stated position on marriage that they didn't agree with and the majority of those on the school board were homosexuals. That's just one example. We, we could go on all morning listing more and more. But what has been the effect on Christians with the increase of opposition to Christianity? Certainly not true of everyone. It is becoming increasingly factual. I think you can see this growing, that Christians are less confident in their commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture than they have been in past generations. And this flailing faith is leading to a growing anxiety that either boils over into increased anger and hostility toward the public at large, or a deeper hole of discouragement and slouching away from any public statement for Christ. We're going to watch this take place more and more as large, we saw it this last week, large Christian churches, those who have identified with Christ are now abandoning a, a orthodox teaching about a number of issues in the, in the church and for the church and we're going to watch this happen as the spirit of the age just begins to take over what we see in the church. But what does that kind of increased opposition to Christianity and our slouching away from confidence in our faith have to do with eschatology? Well, the heat of the opposition appears to be more mesmerizing to us at times than the invigorating vision of the impending vindication of suffering saints at the coming of Jesus and the very purpose of his coming to invest his glory into those who are his as we're filled with absolute marvel in the brilliance of our conquering Christ when he returns. The wane of eschatological expectation is actually dwindling our faith. 
Another reason eschatology has fallen on hard times, resulting in churches filled with fragile faith and evaporating love, is because of the life-sapping, unending debates over the timing of the events surrounding Christ's return. Christians who become angered and soured and belligerent towards other fellow church members who would dare to posit a position on the particulars of Christ's return, different than theirs. You see it in two general extremes normally. Two extremes on eschatology tend to exist among us. One that tends to read the daily newspaper into everything in the Bible which has a tendency to drown people in anxiety over what they believe is a growing fulfillment of biblical prophecy and impending doom. And the other extreme is one that reads all of the ancient history books and their events into the Bible, tending to leave people having less expectation for the return of Christ, and they tend to be driven by uninterest and compelled very little by the thought of Jesus' return. Poor teaching has actually fostered a more fragile faith. But it's not merely been our faith that has become more fragile because of the hard times of eschatology, so has our love for one another. Our love tends to evaporate when we don't have a proper eschatology, where people become so preoccupied with worrying about eschatology in everything They begin to become overzealous about the culture's encroachment on our rights. And they begin to retreat from congregational participation. Or even in the basic responsibilities that the Bible calls us to in life. Work ethic begins to wane away. People begin to retreat from the world. And self-preservation becomes the mantra. And self-preservation is never love. Or we see others who see little eschatology in anything and they develop an uncaring attitude towards anyone other than themselves and certainly toward those who see eschatology in too much. And they begin to say, I don't want to have much to do with any of this. I'll just focus on me and myself and self-preoccupation becomes the mantra and self-preoccupation is never love. So increased opposition has a tendency to lead to a fragile faith. Inaccurate instruction produces an unstable confusion among people. And improper isolation results from decreased love in the church. And the reality is that all of those things can be overcome through a a right understanding of the return of the Lord. In fact, the effect that eschatology should have on us is to make us an expectant and stable people. Where eschatology is rightly understood, you find a people who are longing for Christ to come and they live life in very stable ways, disciplined ways. Expectantly stable is the result of a right eschatology. It's not irrelevant. The study of the end times, 
The study of what is to come is not irrelevant. It actually is very practical. It's very helpful in responding to increased opposition and interpreting our surroundings and living a disciplined life that actually loves each other appropriately. And that's exactly what this book is all about. It is about living life in light of Jesus' return so that your faith is enlarged and your love grows. Yes, I recognize there are a lot of different ideas and opinions on eschatology and that has a tendency to make Christians just ignore the whole thing or say eschatology, it just doesn't really matter. And if that's where you are, you cannot live a life pleasing to the Lord. Eschatology actually motivates sanctified living. We cannot shy away from it. We can't just respond to the extremes by ignoring it. The Bible doesn't do that. So, this morning I want to, to see this theme through an overview of the whole book at once. We are to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the whole book at once. And then over the next number of weeks, we will unpack all of the details together. So what I want to do in this overview is I, I want to just simply go over a few reminders that we're going to see in the first few verses, and then I want to review the whole thing. So just a few reminders that I think that's what we see in the first two verses, and then we'll review the whole book together. Look at the opening verses of the book. These are phrases that oftentimes just feel more perfunctory than purposeful or even personally practical. But listen to them carefully. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the point in opening a book this way? Why open this book and this letter in this way? Well, you say, well, obviously, you want to know who it's from and who it's to. But that's not the way Paul writes it, is it? Is it? He doesn't just say, Paul, to the Thessalonians. Let's get down to business. He doesn't say it that way. He does not merely introduce the letter so simply. And when Paul pins this introduction in the way that he does, he wants the readers to remember something about him. He wants the readers to remember something about themselves and about the uniqueness of what they will read so that they'll read this letter with a specific reminder on their minds. So of what does Paul in this introduction remind the Thessalonians? I think one thing he reminds them of here is you need to remember who you're hearing from. You need to remember who you're hearing from. It's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now that's exactly the way he introduced himself and his ministry companions in 1 Thessalonians. Likely, this book was written just a few months after 
1 Thessalonians was written. Many of the themes that we see in this book are themes that we saw in the first book. It's not quite as long because he's already giving, given them significant instruction. He's just following up on a number of items and expanding it just a little bit. Now Paul, we know, previously known as the Jewish pharisaical scholar, he was a zealous protector of Judaism before he was converted to Christ. The Lord Jesus confronts him, Acts chapter 9, we read about that. He confronts him personally and calls him to be an apostle, which means he was called to be a specific voice for Christ on earth. He was an apostolic representative of Jesus Christ, an earthly direct spokesman for Jesus. He was known for bringing the gospel message to the Gentile nations, starting churches all over the Gentile world. Now, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are very early letters in all of Paul's writings, perhaps the earliest of his letters. And it's interesting here that Paul does not introduce himself here as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like he does in so many other letters. In fact, when you read many of the other letters, you'll see him start with that, Paul, an apostle, and a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He gives none of that here, just Paul. The fact that he doesn't mention his ministry title, apostle, or his service to Jesus as a slave of Christ, but just his name, likely means that he wants them to remember him personally, what they know of him personally. Just to mention his name is to remember the time that he spent with them. You remember back in 1 Thessalonians, especially chapter 2, Paul spent so much time calling the Thessalonians to remember how he actually lived with them and what kind of impact his life and his lifestyle and his work ethic and his gospel-centered living had in, among them. He kept calling them to mimic that lifestyle that they knew so well. Just to say his name in introducing the second letter is to simply recall and remember all that they knew to be true of him. They knew how much this man loved them and was devoted to them. Who are they hearing from? A beloved brother, not just an apostolic authority. A beloved brother, their personal example of what faith looks like. And, and don't forget, when Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, when it when he first went into that city, it's recorded in Acts chapter 17. He was there only a few short weeks, maybe a couple of months, before he upset the entire city to the point where jealous Jewish leaders of the synagogue stirred up the worst characters in the culture to threaten to kill Paul so much so that he was actually run out of the city and even run out of nearby cities like Berea when they found out he had run there. These people watched Paul suffer opposition and he did not ever budge in his faith and called them to remember what he was like and follow his example. They knew his faith. They knew that he was devoted to them. I mean, if you remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he expressed so much love and affection for the Thessalonian church. He could not stand to know, to not know how they were doing. He was so attracted to this congregation. And they remembered these men who were with Paul. How they stayed behind when Paul was run out of the city 
And they continued to serve these new Christians, this new Christian church and how Paul, when when they had left the city and Paul had sent them back because he had to know more about how they were doing. That's Silvanus and Timothy. Nothing has to be, be really said about these because these people know these men so well. Silvanus, also known as Silas. Silas is the name that's described in Acts chapter 17 who accompanied Paul to the city of Thessalonica. Silas, who went with Paul through most of his second missionary journey, he was an elder, he was a prophet, originally from the original Christian church. Timothy is that young, devoted protege of Paul, with whom Paul likely had no greater relationship with anybody. Timothy was so uniquely tied to Paul and Paul's heart for ministry and the church and the gospel. In fact, Paul would say of Timothy and other places that there wasn't anyone else on the planet who could really represent the heart of Paul to another church like Timothy could. His background, he came from a Jewish mother and a Roman father, a pagan father. So he knew both the worlds of Judaism and paganism, but he would even follow Christ even when it led him into jail. If you remember, the writer of Hebrews refers to Timothy at the end of the book as Timothy had just been released from prison. So while these three men are with Paul, it's likely that when Paul writes this letter of 2 Thessalonians, it's it's really Paul's writing to them. He will use the second person, we, many times, but in other places, like in chapter 2, verse 5, you'll you'll hear him say, I say this to you because it's really him writing this letter why does he open this way because he doesn't want them to just think about his position he wants them to remember his person who he is how he lived with them the relationship that these men invested in them for the sake of Christ and the gospel. When you pick up this letter, you, your mind is flooded with memories of life lived with this great man. So that they would follow that example. He, he tells them to do that in chapter 3, verse 7. You know yourselves how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Follow our example. Remember what I taught you. That's going to come up often, especially in chapter 2, verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is nothing new. I just need to remind you again. You need to remember who this is from. Also, you need to remember who you're hearing from or who you are as you hear it. Remember who you are. Who are they? The second part of verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really fascinating. To the church of the Thessalonians, the gathering of Christians in the city of Thessalonica. It's it's very important to remember that this was a very important city in the region. This is the capital city of the region of Macedonia, which is the northern part of the, the Greek peninsula. In the ancient time, especially in the first century, it's probably around 200,000 people that made up the population of this city, which is very significant for a first century city. 
It was the cultural center point of the region. To speak contrary to the culture in this city was to relegate yourself to lost influence, to lose affirmation from the culture. If you were to stand against this culture, no one would really want to listen to you. But listen to the way he describes this church because this is different. They are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why add that? If you're just introducing the letter, why add that phrase? In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When the culture starts to look at the church and say you have no reputation... When the outside world begins to oppose us and says, you will have no influence, we can become defensive. We can start championing our American rights. We can start fighting back and say, yes, we will have influence. We have a right to have influence in this culture, in this world. And the reality is, they're not going to just bow down and give it to us then. And so what tends to happen then to the church is they begin to slouch away from confidence because the culture is so hard against us. But who are you? You are the church who is in God, who is your father. What greater influence do you want than that? What more do you desire than to be known as a people who has the God who breathed everything into existence as your father, who you have appealed to? Sure, go to the voting booth. Vote your convictions and conscience as a Christian. You have a great privilege to do that. But remember, our greatest appeal is not to our government, or the society. It is to God who is our Father. Never forget the great appeal that we have in prayer. Every time we come to God in prayer, we appeal to God as our Heavenly Father. He rules from heaven and He cares about us as if we belong to Him as His own children. Nothing should mean more to us than to know that we are a part of the very family of God Himself. He's your father. Your reputation, your significance, your influence in the culture is not a matter of self-preservation or self-promotion. You are a church that God looks at as belonging to him and he is our father. He sees our suffering. Our father will vindicate it. He's already revealed to us what we should expect. He's taught us. He hasn't left us so that we would wonder what's going on. He's our father. We look at how he's originally loved us. Our father has taught us how to love each other. You're the church who has God as your father. You're also the church who has God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, distinct persons, the Father and the Son, but they are both God. 
singularly. You not only possess God as your father as a congregation, you have Jesus as your authority. Think through that. Your authority as a congregation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is interesting that Lord is mentioned 22 times in these three chapters, all referring to Christ. 22 times. Compare that with 24 times it was mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, which has five chapters. So what's, what's a great emphasis here? The Lordship of Jesus. He is the authority. Jesus is a greater authority than our culture. He is the author and the authority that comes from the scriptures. He is the authority you should bow to in how you respond to the culture and the world around us and how we actually love one another. He's the Lord. It is the Lord Jesus. That's the earthly name, Jesus. Yahweh saves, emphasizing his humanity and his being the savior of mankind. He's the primary example of what it means to actually love one another. Jesus' name is mentioned 11 times in the book. The the term Christ is the messianic title of Jesus. What does that mean? He's the Messiah. Why is that important? Because the entire Old Testament predicted that Messiah would come. And from the very beginning, Messiah would be the one who would be the seed that would come from the woman and crush the head of the serpent. Who's going to crush the activity of the evil one in this world? One person, Messiah. One person. It's interesting in this book, he, Jesus is never referred to merely as Jesus. He's always, in this book, either referred to as the Lord Jesus or as Christ. Most often, nine times he's referred to with this full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? When you're experiencing opposition, when you're experiencing confusion, when love is beginning to wane... What you need to remember about your Savior is who he is in the full nature of who he is. The Lord, the authority, the Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one who will conquer sin and all of its effects. You need to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let me say this, and we're going to hear it over and over again, but we need to keep pressing it into our conscience There is not another authority greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in this culture is going to challenge that authority. Everything in this culture will challenge his authority over us. We're going to see that rise more and more and more. It has been predicted, prophesied, promised that there would be this kind of challenge. And it is rising. Even if it is that God might grant a time of revival and renewal in our country, which I have no doubts that some of that may be going on, there is also going to be an increase of opposition. There's going to be an increase of confusion about what's going on in our world. And we are going to be challenged with whether or not we're going to actually be loyal and devoted to one another as a church family. And the one 
single voice of authority that we must tether our life to is the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Christ, who alone is our Savior, who is the promised one who is coming. So remember who's written this to you and the example he's left us. Remember who you are, the church who has God as her father and the Lord Jesus Christ as her authority. Also remember what you have. What have you been given? You see it in verse two? What have you been given? Grace and peace. Again, grace and peace, this is how he opens every letter, isn't it? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, he just stopped right there. Grace and peace to you. But here he adds the same phrase that he just rehearsed when he was speaking of the church. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have to do that. But Paul doesn't waste words. Paul doesn't just write things just to write things and to spend ink. There's purpose behind it. Why would he have to rehearse this again and say these phrases again? Because evidently these Christians needed to be reminded again. They are a people who have grace from God who loves you as if he is your very father. And he is bringing peace to you with him. He's not coming in vengeance against you. No, he's coming in vengeance against the culture, but not against you. And that peace you have with him will cause you to have peace with each other. In fact, he commands that we have peace with one another. They need to remember what they've been given. The undeserved favor from God and peace with him and each other. Remember who you are hearing from. Remember who you are and what you have. As you hear these words in the next number of months as we unpack them, I want you to remember the life of the Apostle Paul and how he served and lived faithfully under opposition. I want you to remember who you are. Summit Woods Baptist Church is equally a church that is in God who is our father. He is our father. He cares about all of us. We are also together as a congregation under his unique authority as the Lord. We do not have a right to just do whatever we want, define things as we desire to. We are under the authority for everything in our life. But he is a God of grace, isn't he? And he is creating peace among us. That's what the gospel does. We fail at that many times. But what rights the ship when we fail? When we're discouraged and we think this is all up to us, no, we're reminded he has grace for us. When we let each other down and we get crossways with one another, what are we, what are we to remember? His grace establishes peace among us. Why do I go to that extreme to talk about that? What is this church facing? They're facing severe persecution. Look at verse 4. We ourselves 
speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your what? Persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. We've said it before, we just want to remind ourselves again, this church, when they met every Sunday, someone was missing, likely, because they had been martyred for the sake of following Christ. That would be very sobering, wouldn't it? Severe persecution. They're also facing specific deception. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He's writing that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by, listen to this, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There's deception. Could be that someone was standing up in the midst and saying, I have a word from the Holy Spirit that was actually denying what Paul had previously taught in this church about the day of the Lord. Or maybe there was a letter that said it had come from the Apostle Paul when actually it had not. And it was, it was suggesting confusion into the church, contradicting what Paul had originally taught them, saying that severe persecution going on in your midst right now, the day of the Lord has come. You're living in it right now. There was specific deception going on. Verse 5, Paul has to remind him, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I'm not saying anything new. I'm just reminding you of things I've already taught. Notice verse 15. So what should you do, church? Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Don't believe the deception. They're being persecuted and they're under deception. There's also significant insubordination in this church. Significant insubordination. Look at chapter 3. We get the idea that love for one another as a congregation is actually being challenged. Notice verse 6. Now we command you. It's fascinating to watch this. He's going to encourage them in chapter 1. He's going to urge them in chapter 2. But in chapter 3 he will command them. So this is more intense. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every, watch this, every brother, someone in your midst, a church member, every brother who leads an unruly life, an undisciplined life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. What is that tradition? Well, he already mentioned the tradition back in chapter 2, verse 15, which happened to be his instruction about the coming of the Lord and the events that precede the coming of the Lord. So evidently, people in this church are not living in light of what Paul had taught, being confused, and they're beginning to pull away from the church leading undisciplined lives, not caring for the responsibilities that God has given, not caring about the needs of the church. They're pulling away into self-preservation, slinking away. How do you respond to cultural affliction? 
That's what chapter 1 says. And actually, the way you respond to it is by remembering your eschatology. The Lord is coming. He'll take care of it. How do you respond to specific deception? Well, you remember your eschatology. He's told you, here's what is going to happen. Don't worry about it. Just watch for this. Know these things. These are the things that are going to happen. So you don't have to read the newspaper into everything. Your eschatology will help you. Well, what about all these people who as the culture encroaches and deception seems to reign and they seem to wane away from the church and they're slinking back into self-preservation, what do we do with that? You get back to what you've been taught. Live a disciplined life. In fact, you don't, you don't pull away. You come back to church. You don't pull away, you go to work. You do your job. You live a stable, disciplined life because you know that God is your father. The Lord Jesus Christ is reigning over all of this. You don't have anything to worry about. Actually, a relationship exists between eschatology, persecution, deception, and loving each other. And when these three challenges arise and eschatology becomes our focus, a right eschatology, you know what happens to our faith? It grows. You know what happens to our love? It increases. That's what eschatology has as an effect in the church. It strengthens faith. It grows love. Which is exactly what this book is about. So think about those reminders, but notice verse 3 of chapter 1. Here's the review of the whole book. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because of what? Your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater you know what you have there it's a virtual outline of the book isn't it your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater if he's telling them I see your faith growing he's also exhorting them your faith needs to keep growing if he's telling them your love is is growing he's also exhorting them your love needs to keep growing And therefore, verse 4, he starts talking about what is going to happen with your faith. And he will get into what is going to happen with your love. Do you see that? In fact, in the first two chapters of this book, faith is really the subject. Chapter 1, verse 4, he speaks of your perseverance and faith. Chapter 1, verse 11, he describes God who will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Chapter 2, verse 13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Chapter 3, verse 2, it's mentioned again that you would be rescued from perverse and evil men because not all have faith. 
The first two chapters are all about enlarging your faith. But also, growing your love. Chapter 3, verse 5 is somewhat of a transition verse from the first section into the second. And notice what it says. May the Lord direct your hearts into what? The love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. The love of God. The love for each other that comes from God. May God do that. And then what does he begin to talk about from verse 6 to the end? How do you care for each other in the church? Meaning, how do you love one another? How do you cause your love for each other to grow? So enlarge your faith so that you persevere in the midst of opposition. So you stand firm in true biblical instruction as you focus on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, grow in your love and don't stop doing good, even towards undisciplined people. Admonish them, live a focused life. And the central truth that causes faith to enlarge in the midst of persecution and deception and love to grow when challenged is actually the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. 2 Thessalonians is a call for the church to live in light of the return of Jesus. So I wanted to give you a half hour introduction (laughs) so we could actually just see the outline. Let's look at two ways to live in light of the return of Jesus. We're just going to note them because I'm going to spend months talking about them. Don't worry. Two ways to live in light of the return of Jesus. It's very simple. Way number one, enlarge your faith. Enlarge your faith. That's what chapters one and two, really through chapter three, verse five, but the bulk of it's the first two chapters. Faith is the focus of these sections. How do we do that? Again, there's, there's two issues going on. There's opposition, that's described in chapter one. There's deception in chapter two. How do you enlarge your faith in the midst of opposition and deception? Two things, two ways to enlarge your faith. One, long for God's vindication. There is a reason why the Bible tells us not to try to vindicate ourselves. It's not our job. It's not our job. You you can't do it well enough. You don't have enough power. You don't have enough authority. You don't have enough influence. So long for God's vindication. I want to ask you, why isn't God's vindication over persecuted Christians enough for us? Why doesn't that settle us down? Is it that we don't have a big enough view of who God is? Do we have too big of a view of who we think we are? Have we exalted our rights so that nobody has a right to do this to us? Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. So because of what we know about you and your faith and your love, therefore we ourselves speak proudly among you, of you among the churches of God. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Seems there the kingdom of God is something coming, isn't it? You will be considered worthy of being in the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes, listen to this, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was, believed long for God's vindication he tells him you're suffering what do you do see all of that opposition in light of what God's going to do to that opposition I mean what kind of language do you see here look how intense even violent it is do you think God has overlooked one moment of his people's suffering. If he is your father, do you think he's just turned his head and said, I hate that happened to you? Are you kidding me? It's like his wrath is a reservoir building with every moment of persecution, waiting to be unleashed on a world that will not call him God. And not only that, vindication is not the only thing that's going to satisfy you. You know what else will? Seeing him. You've been teaching yourself about Christ. You've been reading about him in the word. You've been praying to him. In such a way, hopefully, it's increasing your longing. And then you will see him. And it actually says he's coming to invest his glory in the saints. And when we see him, we will marvel. It's as if our minds will be blown with what we see when he comes. That should put all of the opposition into a proper perspective, right? (laughs) What do I have to worry about? That doesn't mean it's not gonna be hard doesn't mean we won't weep and some might not suffer in unimaginable ways I I am confident that will happen but long for God's vindication what does that do when you're longing for God to be to, to vindicate you what does that do to your faith it bolsters confidence it enlarges your confidence in Jesus to say I'm satisfied that God knows what he's doing God will come and he will handle all of this and we'll be so eternally satisfied in seeing Jesus when you long for the vindication of God your faith grows strong and steady and resilient 
But also, if you want your faith to be enlarged, there's a second action. Don't just long for vindication, but secondly, stand firm in biblical instruction. Stand firm in biblical instructions, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. It's here that Paul notes that what he had instructed is actually being called into question in light of the present troubles that are surrounding. It's shaking the saints and causing them to wilt under the pressure because the biblical truth that they once believed, they're now questioning. And let me, let me just say this circumstances will always make you wonder if the word of God is actually going to be true or not. It's what circumstances do to us. So what do you do? You don't question the truth, you remind yourself of the truth over and over and over. It's what Paul does. Look at verse one of chapter two. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And you say, well, what is that? Well, you gotta wait until we get there, all right? We'll talk about it. Don't get antsy. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed, that is the man of lawlessness, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So we're talking about someone and something that is in the future that is only vanquished at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. That's the man of lawlessness with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So it really doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Don't misinterpret what's happening around you. Trust. He's revealed enough to you here that you should never have to worry about present circumstances. There's enough here so that you look at the world and you say, this is not that. What's happening around us is not what we're seeing here. The Lord's going to take care of that future man of lawlessness when he comes. 
what, is, what does that do for us? Well, you stand firm in what the Bible has said and you just trust what the Bible has revealed here. What happens to your faith? It's stable. It's steadfast. You don't move. You don't doubt. You enlarge your faith. Do you see how eschatology causes faith to, to just grow with intensity? There's a second way to live in light of Jesus' return, and that is to grow your love. Grow your love. It's chapter 3, really beginning in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. And why do we say this is about love? Well, it's all about how we're trying to help one another within the body. Because some have been withdrawing and living an undisciplined, unfocused life. They're causing some in the church to say, I'm, I'm tired of dealing with them. If they're going to do that, I just don't want to have much to do with them anymore. I don't want to do them any good. That's not love. That's normal, but it's not love. Some are so overwhelmed by the culture's oppression and the falsehoods that they've bought into they're just slinking back. So what do we need to do? We have to grow in our love. How do we do that? Well, these verses are going to say, here's, here's two ways we grow in our love for each other. One, live a disciplined life. That's right. You, if you want to love others, you have to live a disciplined life. Notice chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves, watch this, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Live a disciplined life. Follow the example that you've been given. Why? Because your, your faith is steady and it's strong. So what do you do when your faith is steady and strong? You go to work. You get up each day and you go do your work. You provide for your family. You live your life in this world. You work on your marriage. You, you grow in sanctification. You build relationships with each other. You do the normal things we're called to do. You live a disciplined life. One of the most loving things you can do for the body of Christ is to live a normal, disciplined life, trusting Christ despite the topsy-turvy events of the world around us. Live a disciplined life. Also, discipline the undisciplined. Discipline the undisciplined. Verse 11 For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So they're not paying attention to meeting their needs and providing and doing the normal things of life, but they're very involved in involving themselves in all of your affairs. 
Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. That's where you get the sense some are withdrawing and some are getting frustrated providing for those who have withdrawn. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, and what would that instruction be? About how to live with a large faith, confident in Christ, If anyone does not obey our instruction, if they don't go to work, if they're withdrawing from the church, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Well, what happens if you shame somebody? Our church will get put on a website and be told, look at how this church shames people. And we'll be ridiculed in the culture. But what... We're not here just to shame people for shame's sake. We're here to expose what is wrong, to urge them to come back to what is right. If we withdraw from them who are withdrawing from us, we preserve the testimony of the church because the testimony of the church cannot be defined by those who will not live a Christ-centered life. But before you treat them poorly... What does he say? Verse 15. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. What I think this means is when you remove them from the fellowship, you do so with tears. Not joy. Weeping, longing, praying for them to return. Praying at Perhaps, like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that the destruction of the flesh might result in the salvation of their soul because that's what's at stake. Now, of course, and we'll certainly talk more about this, it doesn't mean we, we just jump to conclusions about people randomly. We're not eager to just jump to rebuke people instantaneously. Don't, don't live that way with one another. We listen, we learn, we're patient, but we may have to discipline the undisciplined. We have to preserve the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow this instruction. So to live in light of the coming of Jesus, you have to enlarge your faith. You long for the coming of God to vindicate those who are suffering You give yourself over to true biblical instruction so you see your surroundings in the right way. And you grow your love for one another as you live a disciplined life and you have to begin to then discipline the undisciplined. You grow your love. So we could actually sum this up. Chapter 1 essentially says, you know what, we need to step up. We need to step up and live worthy of our calling despite the opposition. Step up to it. Be confident. In chapter 2, we need to settle down. Settle down. Hold fast to what you know is true. Chapter 3, we need to shape up. Live a disciplined life. Sounds like what you want to tell people, isn't it? Step up. Settle down. Shape up. Just get with it. How well does that work?
At the end of every one of these instructions, do you know what the Apostle Paul does? The end of chapter 1, the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3, after he gives this instruction, step up, settle down, shape up. He prays. He prays for the saints. Why do you think he does that? Because it's not enough to just tell everybody, go do what you're supposed to do. He begs God for God to cause it to happen. Do you notice that? Notice how he prays, chapter 1, verse 11. After he tells them, long for the vindication of God, long for it. He prays for them. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy. What does that mean? That God will cause you to see the value of Jesus as being so high that you are willing to suffer for it. Because we know that's not natural and you're not just going to do that. So we're praying that God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How dependent is Paul on God to accomplish what he exhorts the saints to do? He's praying in such dependence. Notice at the end of chapter 2, after he's telling them, settle down. Verse 16, he prays. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. It takes God to do this. Chapter 3 Verse 1, he starts asking them to pray for him that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. He prays again for them. Verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you're doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And what does he do after he's told them to live a disciplined life and discipline the undisciplined? Look at verse 16. Chapter 3, now may the Lord of peace, that's right, the Lord who causes peace between people, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Eschatology can't fall on hard times. Our faith is dependent on it. Our love is dependent on seeing the Lord's return. It causes us to be an expectant people who live stable lives. So that needs to be our prayer for each other. That through our study of this book together, we will be more confident in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what happens. We need to pray for each other. That we will love one another in such a way that we live faithful, disciplined, fervent lives and we care for those who begin to wander away and pray that God does that work. Not us just trying to will it so by high pressure but praying that God will so work in our hearts that the culture sees here is the body of Christ. 
here is what Christ looks like. And that that actually might be a testimony of which we see people converted. Let's pray for God to do that.